This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are going back to a subject that comes up often. And the only clear answer is not duct tape. So the question can't be how to shut us up because duct tape works pretty well on us. It stopped me more than once. (laughs) But no, we are talking about cork versus screw cap. Ah, yeah. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Today we are going back to that question, what's better, cork or screw caps, or even better, do you care? We have questions from listeners, including from some smart people who should know better than to ask us questions, Paul. (laughs) Our horrible wine writing includes a critic who wants to vilify wine. Ouch. I know. And as usual, we will make fun of wine stops. Stay with us. This is Ball Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're talking about whether the phrase put a cork in it means anything anymore. It does when somebody says it to me. We get it a lot, don't we? <laughs> Sometimes. I, I sure do. But we're talking about putting corks in wine bottles or whether that matters anymore to wine and whether a screw top is better. Mm. And, you know, this comes up because we got a question from a listener. It's a good question. And uh, let me read the start of it. I live in wine country and work for a winery, she Ooh. says. So I'd rather not give you my name. You can call me Jane. Hi, Jane. If that is your real name. She just said it wasn't her real name. Right, right. right you are. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, here's what Jane has to say. <laughs> Note <laughs> that Rick is making quotation marks air, in the air, air while he's talking about this. <laughs> I saw a story in my local paper about how Cork was making a comeback, and it listed a couple of big deal wineries who swore they sold more wine because they used Cork. Yep. I didn't know Cork needed a comeback. What is going on there? Yep. That's an interesting answer, and this is always why there's these issues in whether it's wine or anything sort of get misplayed. There's a bit of a marketing campaign going on. Paul, you'd know a little yes. bit about that, being a professional marketer yourself. Well, in fact, that my company years ago did a lot of work for the cork industry. And let's be clear, there are two questions here. One of the questions is, on a technical basis, which is the better closure, a cork or a screw cap? The other question is, which would a consumer rather buy when they're shelling out 10 20 30 50 75 for a bottle of wine? The answer to the second question in general is pretty clear. Consumers pretty much prefer using the cork because they like that ritual that comes with pulling the cork. It says quality wine to them. And for lots of folks who don't study the studies the way I do, as you know, it makes them feel safe. They feel that they're getting a guarantee of quality. Right. You know, just to put this in a little perspective, and the cork industry, it's gotten battered a little bit more than it needed to. And the screw cap industry, it's gotten battered more than it needs to as well. Um, so here's a, just a little background. Um, the cork industry really did slide in its market share. It was about 95% in the middle 90s. And according to uh, Wine Business Monthly and a few others, it's down to about 66%. Mm-hmm. Wine Business Monthly did a survey and it said 78% of wineries use cork which is about the same as 10 years ago, which means, of course, then what's that, 22% don't. Right. And we're talking about wineries, many of them maybe New Zealand, Australia, wineries that make bright white wines and nothing else. Or, well, or and simpler it also wines. means wines, but we're only talking cork and screw caps, but what that industry... Or, or artificial cork. Artificial right. corks. And the artificial corks are pretty good for a short period of time, not so good for a longer period of time. So if you're making a supermarket wine that sells for $7, it's just going to go in the supermarket, sell through, get consumed that night... No reason to use right. an expensive cork on it. Absolutely not. Uh, the The issue with cork comes back to something called uh, cork tain or corked or TCA, which uh, you don't need to know. This is 
And I love that there's numbers attached. I never understand why there are numbers attached to things, but it's 246-trichloroanisole. Well done. Known as our friend TCA. TCA. And, of course, the fact that you don't know what the number means that you never passed organic chemistry. You know, I did not. I had a very, very early stage in my career where uh, (laughs) the first two weeks of of my freshman year in college where – even though I wanted to be a journalist, I thought I should maybe go pre-med because if you had good grades, you should go pre-med. And yeah. I know you're surprised that I had good grades. Yeah. So was everybody well, else. Your parents, I'm sure, made a, a strong contribution to it, the school. It was the notion. Well, this was junior college, my friend. <laughs> the notion of organic chemistry was what said, you know, be a journalist. Yes, yeah, stick and, with journalism. Yeah, that's, that's right. Exactly that's right. right. Uh, So uh, worldwide, there are about – and this is – the count is off because every industry count is countered by somebody who's not in the industry. But basically 12 to 16 billion corks made a year. Yes. Paul, talk a little bit about how corks get made so then we can explain why the TCA is an issue. It is a fascinating industry. It really is. To give you an idea, it takes a really, really long time. So first of all, cork – comes from the bark of a cork tree. Quercus so you're putting super. bark in your bottle, folks. Yes. The bark is worse than the bite, as they say. <laughs> and this bark is actually very spongy. There's a long process. You cannot harvest the bark until the tree is about oh, 10, 15 years old, maybe 20. Then you peel the bark off. That first harvest can't be used for corks. It's not consistent enough. You have to do it again. It's Nine not, years later. It's not until the tree is about 35, 40, 45 years old that you can start peeling this bark bark off the tree in a way that gives you solid, consistent cork stoppers. And that's every nine years can you harvest. That's so right. So this is what you would call a capital-intensive business This is in a, a long-term investment. <laughs> yes. In fact, the, the story and the way they say it in Portugal, where a huge amount of the cork comes from, is you plant a vineyard for your children, you plant a cork forest for your grandchildren. Which is why you don't see people who made a, a fortune in the dot-com industry getting into the cork business. No, they want a faster return <laughs> than right. that. So the cork is peeled off the tree. It is absolutely... Absolutely amazing material. I mean, it has been used for everything. It is. It's it, an oak tree. It's a form of oak tree. It's by a the form way. of yeah. oak tree. That's yeah. right. Grow from little acorns. These these cork oaks grow. Yeah. You boil the bark. You punch the bark. You slice the bark. You eventually make these little cylinders out of the bark. And they seal the wine. Now, they are susceptible, as all natural products are, to variations within the quality. So some trees have better bark. Some parts of the tree have better bark. They are also slightly susceptible to some kinds of spoilage. If you get mold or something on the cork, that's what can create this off smell. Right. And remember, this is a cork material, right? So this is an, it is porous. So it, it is there, porous. there are ways for things to get in. It is porous. In fact, what is it? Something like – but it's tiny, tiny, tiny little pores in a single cubic centimeter, for those of you who speak centimeter, there are something like 40 million little tiny cells in here. So it's, it is like an incredibly compressed sponge. You can compress it to half its diameter. It will spring back within five seconds to almost exactly the original dimensions. It's very stable in terms of uh, um, temperature changes and all this. It's really a remarkable it, material. It is, and it's a great history. We're going to actually talk a little bit about cork history in the, our history moment. Yeah. You know, the, um, and, but what happens to it is so then they get washed – 
Yes. Because you used to use chlorine to sterilize it. It's a funnier story than that, Rick, because the difference between a good cork and a bad cork is the number of holes in the cork. The number. Well, and also, doesn't it, its parentage and its upbringing, you know, it's a nature and nurture no, thing, I suppose. No, it's really not. It's really just so the number they, of... So sometimes they just roam the cork gangs <laughs> on the street. <laughs> That's yeah. right. No, no. All cork is judged. And it's actual visual inspection. You look at the cork, and if it looks absolutely pure without a single dark spot on it, that's what they call flor inata, flour and cream. It's just a perfect cork. and you can, I have not heard that phrase. You can pay a buck a piece for those corks. Wow. And on the yeah. other hand, you can get corks down to the third, fourth, fifth quality level. Those almost never show up in America, which have a lot of dark spots. And the dark spots imply that there are weaknesses in the wood that the wine can leak out of. Now, here's the interesting thing. They really used chlorine not so much to clean the cork. They used chlorine because chlorine bleaches things. Ah. And winemakers kept asking for cleaner, Clean, cleaner, cleaner yeah, corks, looking, whiter, whiter, whiter corks. Right. And the pork cork industry said, you want them white? Here's we'll make white. them white. Yeah. Once they eliminated chlorine from the process, what happens is chlorine, when it comes in contact with mold, creates a mildewy smell called TCA. In that word trichloroanisol, that chloro, chloro is the chlorine, chlorine, and that was the problem, and it made the bacteria worse. Yeah, so what you had was the cork industry washing corks in chlorine to, get, to make them look prettier, and we all know single best place to find mold anywhere on the planet, any winery bottling room. Yeah. I mean, every winery is full of mold. You walk into a cellar and you often see... The rooms are humid, there's wood, they've been there forever, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. lots of things going so on. So you had the perfect conditions for this. Today, they don't use chlorine in the cork industry. The, they screen them. They screen them for this. The wineries screen them. So the incidence of problem corks has gone way, way down. I think the last time I judged a wine competition, I tasted a hundred, no, 220 wines in two days, and we had one bottle that was actually had a problem because of the cork. That's yeah. a pretty low percentage. Yeah, and they're screened. I mean, these, these are screened by mass spectrometers and All sorts you know, of gas chromographers and biomechanical yeah. alerts. No, bear I'm in mind, a, a winery yeah. that buys a million corks is not screening a million corks. They're screening a mil-spec standard of, you know, maybe a few hundred of those corks selected at a random basis to see what the incidence is. So, and what TCA does is, um, it, it's really why you taste a wine, I mean, there are some other spoilages too, but it's sort of the thing you taste the wine for at, when they pour it for you at the restaurant, is right. the wine bad? And this is actually why it's in some ways the most insidious is that it sometimes just dulls the wine. So you don't really know anything's wrong with the wine. It just feels like it's not that great a wine. So people have said that about you, right? I've, I, they, but they say I'm more I'm more the next level of TCA, which is that the next level is you smell— <laughs> Not just dull. I'm not just dull. I smell like wet cardboard or wet dog. That's the, Exactly. <laughs> that's, to me, the best descriptor of this that people find easy to understand is, you know the sponge on your kitchen sink? That frequently, because you have chlorine in your water, because you there's mold in your kitchen that frequently smells like TCA. It's that kind of mildewy smell. Funny, I've been described that way That's as well. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. So the cork industry says it's down about one percent. And you know, you and I both judge a lot of wines, it tastes yep. a lot of wines, and and I'm with you. Those numbers yep. sound very familiar. I usually, if it's a two day judging, maybe one wine, maybe two wines. Right. Um, right. The uh, the plastic cork industry, yep. they say it's more like two or three percent. Right. 
the screw top industry says we're not we're not weighing in on the numbers. <laughs> we just think our stuff works. You know, there's a, a Andrew Waterhouse at UC Dayology professor. He puts it between one and two, so he's right. going to call it one and a half percent. Right. And he's probably he let, he's got less skin in the game. Um, right. But he does make the point: if your iPhone or your Droid, we are not taking sides because the, we could use the sponsorship from either. Or the tires on your car. <laughs> are your tires on your car? One percent of your tires failed. Yeah. That wouldn't be a good thing. Right. But they're getting there. So the next question then becomes the difference to the wine. Right. As you said, there's two things. There's the qualitative dis- difference, and then there's the emotional difference. That's right. That's so right. we went through the emotional. Folks just, there is a ceremony to when it. When you order a gl- bottle of wine in a restaurant and the waiter shows up and goes, and pops the screw cap off, even if you're an expert and you know, there are still people around the table who may look around and say, what a cheapskate he's yeah. buying. Because traditionally, screw caps have been used for inexpensive wines. Now, it's not true anymore. Some expensive wines are bottled with screw caps. But there is still in the vast American market an awful lot of people who think that yes. screw cap means this can't possibly. Now, interesting is that the younger generation of millennials who are drinking wine, they don't Matters think quite so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and is you know it's funny because uh, th- thinking uh, differently is uh, I I'm going over to some friend's house going to be making dinner I put a couple of wines in the fridge to get cold for the wife yep. that I'm bringing over and one of them is a Sauvignon Blanc with a screw top and I thought to myself oh good this is one wine I don't have to open because they always give them to me to open right. because in theory right. I should know how to, like anybody can't yep. get a wine bottle but well that's I got to tell you when when I look at sometimes when I'm teaching a class and we're going to be tasting you know I got sixty students in the class and we're going to be tasting eight wines and I look up at that lineup of 24 or 32 bottles of wine I got to open. I look down that row and I see four or six or eight with a screw cap and I think, thank Happy day. heavens for yep. those. Those Happy are day. the easy ones. Yep. In reality, as Paul said earlier, most wines that most people drink, we're not going to age them that long. It doesn't really matter. Right. Um, and so the difference really becomes an aging thing. Over time. And, yeah. And there's been two studies uh, and I'll get through these quickly. One. Wait, uh, have you done some research on this? Rick? I did again. Yes. Uh, Plum <laughs> Jack and UC Davis, uh, yes. they uh, over 200 bottles of a Sauvignon Blanc, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they natural cork, synthetic cork, and um, screw cap, and they measured the rate of oxidation with a, a mass spectrometer looking at the color darkening. Right. And no surprise, the screw cap was the most consistent and less oxidation. The synthetic yep. cork was the greatest. Right. And then the variation was, was in the larger in the national Although um, a yeah. couple of interesting points about that story, Rick. One of them is that Plump Jack, of course, was one of the first oh, very high-end wineries. $100 plus cab. Well over $100. Mm-hmm. And they actually charged a few dollars more for the, the wine that was in the screw cap because they did both. They did cork and screw cap, but the screw cap actually had a higher price. Yes. And one other story that like it's been going on uh, at Chateau Margaux yes. for a, more than 10 years. Yes. But back in 2012, they took a they what they had is a bunch of uh, same thing synthetic uh, screw cap and natural cork, and they right. Chateau Margaux, one of the great wineries in France. If you remember our conversation from last week, it's a left bank winery, more Cabernet than Merlot in Bordeaux. See That's that? true. See how we're tying this together? Yeah, yeah. We actually listen to ourselves. Nobody else does. <laughs> Over 10 years, they figured out that that wines, as you said earlier, wines aging in the synthetic, something changed and that wasn't great. Right. But the difference between screw cap and cork, they said after 10 years, too early to tell. Too early to tell. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you know, that's what people say about us. It's too early to, too tell, early to tell whether tell. we are worth, <laughs> worth listening to. But when we come back, we're going to take some questions and uh, we'll see if we are actually maturing 
uh, gracefully. Uh, gracefully or not. <laughs> You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. We will be right back with some questions from a few smart people as well. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time to open our mailbag, mail slot, and email uh, acceptor. <laughs> if you'd like to ask us a question, you can uh, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine, or look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe with, for free with just one little itty-bitty click. Our first question today comes from a guy who probably ought to know better than to ask us questions. He's the executive director of the American Wine Society. His name is John Hames, and he says that, asks this. All the experts say 55 to 57 degrees Fahrenheit is the best cellar temperature because mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the natural temperature of caves. How do we know the wines don't get better at 50 or 52 or 60? Have any studies been done, done to determine why 55 or 57 or 58? Is that any better than some of those others? And, you know, doesn't John Hames have more important things to do for the wine society, the American wine society, than to ask us difficult questions? That we don't know the answer well, to. Well, and I would say and and worry over just a couple of degrees. Well, but, <laughs> yeah, really, seriously, he should have. Uh, John, really, why are you wasting your time listening to us? <laughs> that's that's what, what we're saying. Well, you know, uh, Paul and I talked about this before the show, and I actually spent hours on research. You know, as a journalist, I'm actually not bad at research. Yeah. I'm not good at it, but then I'm not good at anything. <laughs> but I'm not bad at it. I could find nothing. And no. I, I called my friends over at UC Davis. They're just down the road. They, right. They've done nothing. They've done, they did do on storage temperatures of packaging, but it's large, large degrees of difference between, I mean, and transporting. Right. You know, large, 70, 60, 40. Yep. But nobody really can tell you, is 55 better than 58? Yep. Is 52 yep. better than 55? Yep. And, and there are some, it's really interesting. First of all, the reason 55, I think the reason we use that number is because if you did in most parts of the world, dig down a basement where you can dig a basement, particularly in those parts of the world where we make wine, and you'll discover that the temperature of the basement, if it's a nice cave, it's a nice cellar, is going to be about 55 degrees. So they age the wine there. It tastes good when they pull it out. They say 55 is perfect. I'm convinced, first of all, that consistent temperature is more important than cold or warmer. I would rather have it be 62 all the time than go from 50 to 60 to 40 to 60 to 40 to 60 to 40 all the time. Right, right. And they have done studies on that, and they are absolutely right. And we also do know 70 starts to get a bad thing. 70 starts to get warm. There is some formula. I don't know if if they're just making this up, but basically every degree over 70 takes a year off of the aging. But the the other, of course, part of this is also because wines are pretty much bottled at a relatively cool temperature. So you want to keep them cool. Because if they get warm, they expand. And when they expand, they push back the cork. And once they push back past the cork or the screw cap, they then start to leak and let in air. And then it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, and this is actually uh, another example. If they, they won't push past the screw cap, so what's going to happen is you get some internal uh, reactions inside the wine, yep. whereas they will push the cork out. Um, it's also why, by the way, you lie your bottle over sideways to keep the cork moist so it stays Right. Lar- actually, you should lay it over on its side. You shouldn't lie You should it. lay it. Well, yes. You can true. lie all you, you want. No, I've right, lied to you... one more than one water bottle. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but right. you can lay them all. So, now, but the, the other that one, one last little point, because when you brought up this issue, I actually started thinking, scanning my own memory banks here. Remember that there was a cruise ship in the Baltic up there between Finland and Lithuania or something 
that sank with a huge chunk of wine in its cellar. And when it went down deeply into the ocean, the temperature at the bottom of that ocean was about 35, 38 degrees. It was very dark. It was absolutely consistent in quality. And when they pulled those wines up 40, 50, 60 years later, it, after they found the wreck, they you know pulled it all up, and the wines were in great shape. So... Who knows? Cold may be really good, too. But yeah. how easy is it going to be for you to store your wine at 38 degrees? Well, well and, not here. And it's tough going down all that depth That's right. Scuba diving yes. every time you want a new bottle. Yeah, that's that's tough. All right. We have a bunch more questions. We're going to take them all in the second half of the show. Uh, so uh, we will be back in a moment with some really bad wine writing from people who should know better. Excellent. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that music means something. <laughs> it means there's some bad wine writing coming your way. So, Paul, what have you got for us today? Well, you know, the word I like that I think a lot of people use, and I'm not quite sure what it means, is focused. Now, Rick, no one has ever described us as focused. I'm sorry, what were you saying? Focus. <laughs> we, focused. We're talking. Focus. Oh, yes. Okay, I got you. Yes. But in terms of a wine, gosh, I think this is a hard wine for consumers to understand. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that what people who use it mean is that it is a very good example of a style. In other words, there's nothing in the wine that sort of stands out to distract you from this purity of style. But why wouldn't you say it's a good example of the style than to say focused? You know, it comes up in food writing, too, which I find is not Uh a really annoying phrase. Like the dinner, the meal, the restaurant is not focused. By what? You mean they didn't cook it right or The restaurant isn't focused or the pig wasn't focused. Yes. I got a pork chop, but the pig wasn't focused. Yeah, he was all over the place. (laughs) That's right. I have one, and it's, um, oh, boy. Uh, There's a couple things in here in particular, though. I'm sorry. This is a winemaker talking about his wine. Okay. I started the name of the winery because I wanted to spread my creative wings and show how much of an art form wine truly is. Unique, creative, and unorthodox techniques that I literally invent are what defines my wines. Wow. It was created for the collector, intended to be a small family of customers, not the masses. Well, that leaves you and me out. That's for sure. The way in is through another member— called Legacy Program, or through personal connection with the winemaker, which is the guy who's writing this. The perks are vast at the top membership level. The wine is liquid silk and reeks of luxury. (laughs) Maybe the highest level of vilification techniques in the best French oak available. Okay, so I'm guessing that the vilification techniques is a spell check problem uh, right there. I, uh, I'm maybe guessing, not because the wine reeks of luxury. Reeks of luxury. Yes, although you know, does I'm, that mean it think, smells like the diesel exhaust of a forty-five million dollar yacht? Yes, exactly right. <laughs> yes, or somebody burning money, I suppose. Um, so this is, I mean, this is never. I mean. Well, I wouldn't say never mind, but the writing is horrible. But the idea behind it is just as horrible, which is yes, this is, is for the very, very few, you know. And You and know what? And I'll bet he sells to everyone in his family that can afford it. That's probably you right. Know, his mom probably buys one, maybe even two bottles. While the rest of us are out there vilifying this really ridiculous <laughs> thing. but And there's no ego involved either. I want to spread my creative wings. Um, yeah. Uh, unorthodox techniques that I literally invent. It's but, not um, for the masses. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. Yeah, that is, um, 
not for the masses. Well, we are definitely for the masses. I hope so. Uh, although they vilify us constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we vilify ourselves well, pretty we successfully. Do, we, and not All on we, our own. And we deserve it. Yes, we do. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes and subscribe for free. We have lots more questions and some other fun stuff when we return in the second half of the show. Stay with us. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Time for our historic history moment of the week. I do love those trumpets. It makes us sound so substantive. I, I, you know, it makes me think of gladiators, baby. <laughs> well, that would be us. We are the glad. No, we are. No, we so, are not. We are so not the gladiators. We are, we are the Christians, not the lions. <laughs> yeah, it would be us. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking cork, so let's do some cork history or cork modern history. Well, a little of both because, again, I was talking about what an amazing material this is. It, it, corks only started getting used in the wine industry in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Before that, wine was shipped in barrels or, for that matter, goat skin bags or amphora. But interesting, corks were actually used to seal little bottles of perfume 2,000 years ago, maybe even more than that. Back at the time of the Romans, they used tiny little cork stoppers to fill tiny little perfume bottles of scented olive oils and things like that, uh-huh. oh, um, right. which, by the way, the Romans used instead of bath salts. They actually, they didn't bathe. They were rubbed down and scraped off olive oil. As you, know, a way you know, Paul, I'm wearing olive oil today. You know, Rick, that's more information than it, I need to know right now. <laughs> it explains the flies. You reek of luxury. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> but the other end of the cork industry is know that this stuff is such an amazing material that when they built the space shuttle, they insulated parts of the space shuttle with natural cork because they could not create an artificial synthetic material that would do the job as well as a centuries-old natural product. Pretty impressive. Pretty cool I, stuff. I, I think my car's brakes are made out of cork, <laughs> but it might explain a lot. Well, I have a different a different piece of this, and I have actually used explained this before on For History Moment, but I'm bringing it back up again because it does also talk about the nature of the marketing with, uh, yes. with cork. Tesco is the largest grocery chain in the, in the United Kingdom and one of the five biggest companies on the planet. We're talking, you know, the Walmarts yes. and the Amazons and the Tescos. And in the early 2000s, our friends in Australia barely used uh, screw caps on their wines, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 1% of Aussie wine. Tesco decided that shipping those wines across the ocean as they were and then selling them and all those other things, they decided they wanted their wine from Australia That's in right. screw caps. And, yep. and virtually uh, nowadays, well, but within, within four years, 2004, 70% of Australian wine was in, in screw, screw caps. caps. Yeah. Yes. And, and now virtually all of Aussie and New Zealand wines are in screw caps. And you see a lot from, from uh, Southern Hemisphere wine, places like uh, uh, Chile and Argentina and whites are almost always in screw caps. Of course, you South also Africa. know that Tesco Wine Division recently has had some very awkward financial dealings that they're trying to explain away. So who knows? <laughs> they did. I think they have corked their uh, financial books or some <laughs> some version of them. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny you raise the point about shipping wines because while while corks have their problems. During the earthquake in Napa last year in August, in my office, we lost two bottles of wine. 
you know, as you imagine, I work in an office that, you know, we represent wines from all over the world. So we have an office full of wine. Only two bottles were damaged, both of them with a screw cap. The cork wines fell to the floor and were okay. The screw cap wines fell and dented the top of the cap, and those two bottles leaked. So wow. it's sort of interesting to me that, you know, it's it, there is no simple, straightforward, one is better than the other. Well, we do know cork can take a hit. I think there's there's no doubt about that. Yes, it's, that uh, may explain why the, you have the cork wrapping around your head. This that's it. Well, I try. I think it's a protective thing. <laughs> um, all right, we uh, we have a few questions to get to, so I think we're going to go Good. straight to our mailbag because we uh, we didn't get to them all. Uh, a reminder: if you'd like to ask us a question, you can go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word: Rick and Paul Wine. All right. Uh, so one of them we've uh, mentioned earlier. We have a Fresno enclave of Fresno listeners who yes. have been coerced. Uh, by my wife, basically, uh, to listen to us. But they do. So this one comes from Armida Espinosa. And she says, and it's an interesting question, and I get the point. You know, I love rosé. How do you convince someone to like rosé? Oh, that's so hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the, 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 the easy answer is why should you have to? If you don't convince them to like rosé, there's more of it for you. The price stays low. Everything's good. The more people who fall in love with rosé and I love rosé, it just means the prices are going to go up and it's, it's going to be harder for the rest of us. So how do you convince them? I will tell you that one of the most romantic bottles of wine I ever had in my life was with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, chilled in a snowbank up in the high sierra camping trip and we pulled that bottle of rosé out of the snowbank we ate it with some fried chicken at the campsite that night and i married that woman yeah. so armina what you can say is if paul can get somebody to marry him with a bottle of rosé it stuff must possible. be good <laughs> that's right <laughs> well and and the answer is almost is you know we say this a lot and of course you can't get people to like anything but and we say drink what you like but right. we say let people tell you what to taste. The idea is just make them keep tasting it. And I have to say, speaking of wives, my wife had a, a aversion to rosé because you know she's had some bad ones, she, and they sort of reminded her of Kool-Aid. Right. She has, over the years, had some very good ones and is now a fan. Uh-huh. So really, yeah. it's, it's just sort of yeah. being exposed to the good stuff. But I think there's, a, there's another element to this, which is people do have a tendency to taste what they expect. Right. And if right, they right, expect right. not to like rosé, the fact that you're serving them a rosé isn't actually going to change their mind. They're going to taste it. They're going to say, well, it's better than most, but, you know, I'm still not a fan. It... it they can only help themselves, Armida. You cannot help them until they recognize that they themselves need help. Yeah, and, you know, it always pains me to say this, but, Paul, you have a really good point, <laughs> which is wine is a creature of suggestion. It, yep. It's so much is, and we've, we've done, and we will, again, do uh, talk about all these studies the where we tell people studies. wine is good, bad, expensive, not expensive, yep. and people react based on what they think. And, and it is so true, you know, especially I've, with I've, something like rosé. I've got the solution, Armida. Serve the rosé to your friend and tell them that this is a wine that reeks of luxury. <laughs> yes, and it's been artfully vilified. <laughs> okay, here's a good one. This is from Erica Tyler in Las Gatas. I have heard you guys stumble. I like people that don't have much respect for us. I heard you guys stumble around on relationship questions, so I have another oh, one. Oh, <laughs> good. Yeah, she's just doing that. She's just like pulling the wings yeah. off flies. Yeah, here. that's this right. This is what she's doing. I met a guy a couple of weeks ago, and he seems decent enough. 
<laughs> See, already she's convinced, right? We went out to dinner, and he took forever, like forever, to order the wine. Uh, we ended up with some kind of Napa cab. It was fine. Is he going to be a problem? <laughs> well, there's two possibilities here, I think. One possibility is he can be a problem. He's going to spend his whole life looking at everything like this and take forever to make a decision. But let's think about this another way. First date out with the lovely and attractive Erica. We know she's lovely because she listens to us. And we know she's brilliant because she doesn't trust us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he's got to order a wine, and he's terrified. Well, it could be that, yeah. yeah. He okay. thinks, oh, my gosh, she is going to judge me on this wine. So he is just making double careful. What she probably didn't see was him slip his phone out and start checking references to see about these wines on the list so he could make sure he ordered something she liked. And if he's putting that kind of energy into ordering something that she's going to like, I'd say he's a keeper, Erica. Well, you know, this is an odd reversal of uh, your, your and my general relationship uh, kinds of answers. I tend to be more forgiving. You tend to be a little more demanding. Yeah. I think th- I'm, I'm going to take exactly the first half of your of your comment. You know, early date, the lovely Erica, the very brilliant Erica, and he can't figure out just to order something quick and get out of there. So, you know, oh, no, he's or hiding ask for behind help. The, he's or, intimidated. He's hiding behind well, so, the wine list. So and he's thinking, as long as I look at the wine list, I don't have to try to compete with I, her. And keep... I worry that he's showing off, Paul. Okay. Yeah, so um, is hmm. he going to be a problem? Well, he more seems— More research. He, more research. <clears throat> more I say research. go to another restaurant. Uh, uh, make a suggestion in, on, on the wine, even if you don't know, and see how he reacts to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if he yeah. reacts to to accepting what you like, because darn it, you you made that uh, you you, right. then he's a, he's a keeper. And if he is if he starts to argue with you or then stares at the wine list for a very long time, then you know the eject him and go. Take a note from Armida and ask him if he can't find a nice <laughs> bottle of rosé on the go. list and yes. see how he responds. Well, to we'll that get the one. two of you working together, um, <laughs> and we'll uh, we'll report back for all. Of you. That's excellent. I, I like that. All right. Another one comes from, this is a good question, from Jackson Murakami in San Luis Obispo. Is there a reason why some wine bottles are heavier than others, and does it matter to the wine? No, it doesn't matter to the wine. The reason the bottles are heavier is because it's really hard to charge $150 for a bottle of wine that doesn't (laughs) seem like it's really massive. It gets back to that perception. The reason they make wine bottles heavy is so that the people picking them up will think, wow, this wine not only reeks of luxury, it weighs a ton. Yes. And you know who hates these bottles? Uh, anybody who works in the business, the guys That's in right. the stores, oh, my Lord, That's yes. right. Or yeah, restaurants. Yeah. The sommelier comes over. Of course, these bottles are completely opaque, so you can't tell whether there's anything in it or not. And then you pick it up, and it's so heavy, you still, you still can't tell whether in there, anything's right? in it or not. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, there's, uh, I see this a lot, you and I both, because we're around the edges of the industry. We, we see want ads and stuff like that, and, and they what I like this is that must be able to pick up 30 to 45 pounds. And that's the that's difference. That's a case. It's 15 pounds in one case of wine. Yeah. And, and, and when you think about, you know, what's ironic is organic, biodynamic, vineyard, all recycled, um, uh, recycling, energy-efficient winery, and then they put their best wine in a bottle like this that weighs 30% more than their regular bottle and is going to use up all of those— 
those petrochemicals to travel it around the country, and you think, what a knucklehead. Yeah, and that's also, uh, by the way, Jackson, getting transferred precisely to you because you're paying for that as a consumer. Oh, yeah. So oh, they, yeah. you know, they, it is not, as Paul said, not only is it telling you our wine is expensive, but it's also costing them money to, to buy that bottle. So the yeah. answer is there's no real good reason. But It does nothing for the wine. Nothing it at all. It is purely a marketing marketing process. Yes, it is. All right. And another question. This is from Pat Sweeney in Sacramento. He says, some wines are aged in neutral oak. What does that really mean? And does new, neutral oak still impart wood characteristics? Well, it's very simple, Pat. Think of the neutral countries in the world. Sweden, Switzerland, this is wine that is aged in oak that comes from Sweden or Switzerland. <laughs> no, and wait. stored in a Swiss bank <laughs> with a number to count. So that's, that's exactly yeah. it. <laughs> no, so when you put one, not, that's not true, Pat. I'm making that up. It was a joke. So when you put wine in a barrel, two things happen. One of them is that the wine absorbs the flavors of the oak, and the other one is that it slowly interacts with the air in the oak to give it that slow oxidation and development. Same thing you get when you age a wine in a bottle. So neutral oak means that the barrel has been used for three, four plus years. The wine has already sucked most of the flavor out of that. So you're getting the development, but you're not picking up any of the oak flavors. That's all it means. Yeah, it, it starts to wear out. And and the um, one of the things that you get with uh, older oak, uh, uh, or what, that you don't get with older oak, which some folks love, which is that it is pure fruit or closer right. to pure fruit, but you still get a little bit of the softness that, that oak imparts to the wine. That's yeah. sort of the, the characteristic of the yeah. wood. Um, and But generally, after five years, the, there aren't a lot of folks that use neutral oak other than gardeners. Well, they yeah, end up being, because they do end up turning them into planters, although you see this more in Europe where they use the big oak casks. Yeah. Uh, and the big oak casks have fewer... That there's less surface area for the volume, so it really gives less 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 oak flavor to the wine because of the cask being bigger. Yeah. Okay. And we got one more. Uh, this is from Maria Maldonado in Orinda. Mm -hmm. uh, I see bottled in Napa on some bottles, but not usually on more expensive wines. Does that mean anything? It means something very very specific, Maria. It means the wine was bottled in Napa. And nothing else. And nothing else. Yeah. The grapes could come from Venezuela. The oak barrels could come from Madagascar. The only thing they're telling you is somebody has a bottling line in Napa, and that's where the wine actually goes into the bottle. Yeah, and, you know, the labeling laws or, or, or the labels on the, on the words, it's actually worth uh, sort of laying out a little bit because they, some of them mean something and some of them don't. We had a question a couple of weeks ago about Vinted. Yes. And and vinted is means an invented word. It is an invented word. It absolutely <laughs> it, it mean it means nothing. It's actually the folks I wrote my book about, the the founders of Barefoot right. Wine invented right. that word uh, to not be bottled in Napa because they knew that some people knew that bottled or cellared right. in Napa, which is another one that comes up. Yes. Cellared only it means stored Warehouse. there, right? Warehouse. Yeah. You know, now and it's the same thing for, often it might say uh uh vin, vin, vinted and produced by Smith and Johnson Wine company. Right. Which still tells you nothing. Right. It tells you nothing now, about the there, there is one caveat to all of this that I do need to raise, which is that bottled in Napa, for by federal law, only means the wine was put in the bottle in Napa. State law, same thing. Local Napa County regulations 
have, by, by a very interesting process, the winery definition ordinance in Napa says that if you open a winery in Napa, you must have 75% of the fruit for that winery grown in Napa. So for anyone that's been open in the last 20 years, bottled in Napa really does mean that it's actually probably about 75% Napa fruit. There are a few wineries that predate this winery definition ordinance, and I believe that they can still operate by another guideline. But N- Napa is actually a poor example of this because yes, the county of because Napa the county, actually has right. regulations. Yeah, and but anywhere else in the country, bottled there just means bottled there. And if it says produced in bottled Napa, that's a, that's a whole different right. thing. Or, and and one thing you'll see because it's simple, it's cheaper to ship wine in bulk than it is in bottle. Is you will sometimes see Australian wine, Italian wine bottled in California or. Vice versa, there are companies that ship wine to Europe, bottle from California, bottle it in Italy. It's not actually an Italian wine. It's a California wine bottled in Italy. Right. The Napa thing brings up another piece of the Napa uh, labeling issue. Uh, you know, there were a few large wine companies that were just called their wines things like... Um, Napa Ridge. Uh, Napa Ridge. For example. You know, yeah. Um, you know, Napa Friends and Company, whatever it was. Napa right. on, just put it in the name. Yep. And and Napa sued and won because their ordinance says you can't use it. And it's like, you know, we've, we've talked about this in the past about European regions where in Champagne really are not supposed to call wine anything other than, I mean, the only place that can call wine Champagne is from Champagne. Right. From Burgundy, from Burgundy, Bordeaux, right. Bordeaux. And in the U.S., we're a little vaguer on some of this stuff. Napa, because of its own internal laws and because Napa sees itself as a tra- as a, uh, brand, a, a brand. A trademarkable yeah, brand. But it sees it as a brand. And it is a brand. Yep. And, and some other wine regions are taking those kinds of steps, too. But, of course, yep. everybody would like to be associated with Napa. Plus, some of the big wine companies have facilities there from the get-go because right. it was wine country. So there's a whole lot of reasons yep. why you see it on the uh, on that. But the truth of it is— uh, um, bottled in bottled means in. bottled yeah. in, and you know, and you know, we. Are, I'm always a little reluctant to to sort of um, generalize about things, but uh, generally, when the wines are, there are going to be less expensive. They're generally larger, simpler wines that are those bottled in places. They're the supermarket, middle, lower shelf kinds of wines. Um, because that's how they operate. They operate on a scale. That's what they're aiming for. So if, often it's exactly the opposite of what the folks who make wine in Napa want you to think about their wines. There is one other phrase that's sort of fun that ties into all of this, which is if you open an expensive bottle of French wine, there will be a phrase actually on the cork. And that phrase is, and my dear wife who speaks French is quick, Rick, Call her up and tell her to turn off the show. <laughs> Mise en bouteille au château, which means bottled at the château. And what this means is the château has controlled the production from beginning in. They grew the grapes. They produced the wine. They bottled it at the château. So nobody else has anything to do with this wine. And that's a that's a contrast to some producers who make the wine, harvest the grapes or make the wine, and then ship it somewhere else to get bottled. And there's always a little question, is it exactly the same wine that went in the bottle? But your mise en bouteille au château means bottled at the château, guaranteed 
stamp of quality from the chateau. Well, we have that here. It's a state bottled and a, a state grown. There is a yes, difference. A state, absolutely. We, we got a question. I might have just been last week. I know it was recently about what the difference is between a state grown and a state bottle. A state grown means their vineyards. They control their vineyards, right. but it might have been bottled somewhere else. Yes. A state a state bottled means grown in their vineyards and bottled there. Yes, which and, is nice, but again, it all gets may back not to mean anything. does it mean the wine's better? No. Yeah, not necessarily, unless just, they're good winery. Just, yeah. <laughs> and the wine's good. So, yeah. all right. Okay, we have uh, covered a lot of ground. I think we can bottle this one up. Okay, wait, good. Wait, we don't do puns. I'm sorry. My apologies. <laughs> puns, we are no pun zone. But we are zipping up the mailbag, and if you'd like to ask us a question, we will give you full credit for it. Just go to rickandpaulwine.com, or if you'd like, we won't give you credit if you are wise. If you would, if you if would you prefer, prefer to remain anonymous. Yes, many people who are associated with us uh, prefer to. Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. We are uh, come around to our food pairing because I'm hungry, and I think it's time. I'm hungry, too. It's well, about you know, time to eat, isn't it? It is, and it's spring, and it's vegetable season, and but it's grilling time, too. So we're taking, uh, we're taking a nod over to our vegetarian friends. Okay. And, I have uh, two of them in my family. I have one of them in my family. So uh, let's start with a veggie burger. A veggie burger. Yeah. So this is a hamburger made with non-animal byproducts. Yes. That's why they called veggies. Okay. So, but it's a traditional burger. It's got the lettuce, it's got the ketchup. Do you do you put bacon and cheese on a veggie burger? <laughs> well, some people would like to. <laughs> you can put cheese, but it this uh, it could be the vegan burger, it could be the not. We're right. we're going with the pretty standard okay. the the kind of burger that you often find at restaurants. Right. It is uh and on a bun. Right. And so, first thing that I have to say is for me, every time you talk about a hamburger, I understand it's made with beef. I understand there's stuff in there. Veggie burger, not made with beef. But to me, the the most important part of the hamburger flavor profile is the fact that it has sweet, sweet ketchup on it. Well, you know, I view any kind of a burger, which is why, for me, it almost doesn't matter, as simply a grilled grilled mark and ketchup delivery system. A, a vehicle for condiments. Yes. And, yeah. you know, the pickle, the ketchup, and that grill mark. Absolutely. That little yeah. those, are, those are the things. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So with the sweetness, here's the concern. You don't want a wine with high acidity. I think we talked about that earlier. Although I'm going to I'm going to guess and I'm going to make an exception, but yes, I agree with you otherwise. Okay. Yes. So now we're in the area of if you have a wine that has a lot of acidity, it will taste quite sour after that sweet ketchup. Particularly if with this burger you're having uh, french fries and with those french fries you are dipping into the the Thousand Island dressing or the ketchup as well. I told you I was hungry. Now I'm drooling. I'm, I'm ready to eat right now. <laughs> Matt, what's, Matt, what can you get for us? So, um, so I'm going to go with a soft but red wine because yes, I like yes. the power I, of the I, red wine, I like your direction. but I want some softness. I don't want the real tart character. I'm looking at possibly a, a softer, lighter style Merlot or Pinot, but for me, if you got the grilling going on, I want Aussie Shiraz or California Zinfandel. Uh, those were, those would have been my two picks, except I'm going the opposite direction. Except I picked them first, so you can't no, have them. No, I was thinking the opposite direction, and it, it's a sparkling. 
Yeah. A, a nice light sparkling. Not a not a not a super super bright one, but a nice light sparkling. And I have to tell you, I have I have used this pairing in events with 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 meat burgers and with veggie burgers, and it just it it's it's like it's sort of the beer thing. It know? is the beer thing. Sparkling yeah, yeah, yeah. wine is the beer of wine. So for foods that you would normally drink beer with, you can normally go with a sparkling wine. Yes. The only thing that worries me a little is the more ketchup, the less dry the champagne. Yeah. Or the oh yeah, sparkler. yeah. No, it could be. You know, I, I was actually at, in my mind as I said that sparkling. I was thinking the lightly sweet prosecco, oh, a little yeah. bit frothy, a little bit sweet. You know. Yep. But but I've had some pretty crisp, uh, and and I like. All right, so let's go sideways on the veggie burger because there's another yes. kind of veggie burger that I really like. Yes. And it, it always seems to come with red peppers too, but it's like the. The Portobello burger. Right. It or, seems like yes. it needs those grilled peppers to go with it. So that's yep. so so that's a yep. now we're going a little different direction, probably gonna have a little less ketchup on it. A little well, maybe exactly. More Let's expand this and I'm gonna expand this even beyond the Portobello burger. You know the I mean my wife does this wonderful thing where she just roasts, grills, veggies, drizzles them with olive oil, rosemary, and garlic, and that's if it's not dinner, it's a big chunk of it the dinner. It's a good it sounds but good. But what you got there is veggies, you got oil. Now you just want to go the other direction. Instead of getting something that's soft, you actually want something that's kind of bright and lively to cut through the olive oil. This is where I go for a nice, for example, Barbera. A red wine. Nice, nice. Got some acidity to it. You know, we're... 45 minutes from from Amador County where they make great Barbera. Yes, they do. Uh, they make great Barbera in Piemonte in Italy. So I'm going with Barbera. And, Rick, we could be there in 45 minutes. You know, I, I, uh, I, I'm I with you. Let's, okay, well, that, no, we, we still have a show to finish. Uh, I'm going to Beaujolais. Beaujolais, sure. Because it's, that's a Gamay grape. Um, yep. But it is the same sort of, maybe not quite the acidity, uh, but it's still that same sort of richness, and and, yep. uh, and I love that. And it yep. is, had those with various grilled vegetable-y things that, for me, just really rock. To me, it really depends on whether the vegetables come from France or Italy. If they're French vegetables, then you'd be wanting to drink the Beaujolais. If they're Italian vegetables, though, I think you really need to go with the Barbera. Yeah, although you, zucchini, that's you, Italian. And if you, if Courgette, and you get a bit of go with. If the French. you get the vegetables next to each other on the plate, though, they fight. They fight. Yeah, oh, oh God, they're blood. They're, they're, yeah, it's uh, one of them is starting to brag. Absolutely, the other one, it's, it gets a little ugly. I. <laughs> I honestly, you know, and and that is actually, by the way, I, we I brought that one up because it is, you know, this is veggie season, really. We're just getting into veggie yeah. season, and vegetables are are we tend to not think about the pairings with vegetables. We tend to think of it with the protein, right? Although in this case, the portobello is partially, I and mean, all of that is partially the protein. But yep. but vegetables are great great pairings, with, and it's a good thing to think about when you're doing some sort of a pairing. And for those of us who are worried about brain cells, the whole Mediterranean diet, good for your body, good for your brain, grilled veggies, olive oil, glass of wine, you'll live forever, right? If anybody listens to us, they worry about our brain cells, too. <laughs> that is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is the patient and kind Matt Bassini. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use, and a reminder, you can ask us a question and just go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Look for us on iTunes. You can subscribe for free with just one click. And if you've learned anything today, we hope it's this. It's not the cork or the screw cap. It's the wine. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. 